it's always the same group that I have to ring that bell to get them to quit. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us the opportunity of worshiping you. Thank you that your spirit is present here, and we open our hearts to where you want us to go. In Christ's name, amen. World War II was fought and won with fighting men and bombs and bullets. But World War II was also fought and won through words. World War II was started by a man who had the incredible ability to mesmerize hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Adolf Hitler was a man who was deeply into the occult. I don't know if you're aware of that. And as a result, the, the combination of his abilities, oratorial, oratorial, oratorial abilities, and the demonic powers that he had, he was able to bring an entire nation with him to the brink of war and keep them going in that direction. One of the things he tapped into was the anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jews that was latent among all the people of Europe. Okay, if, you, if we think about Germany was really the ones who were anti-Semitic, who were against the Jews, they all were. The Poles were, the Czechs were, the Hungarians were, they, they was the, the, the British were. There was a hatred of the Jewish people that was spread throughout all of the European nations, but especially deep among the German people. And Satan hates the Jewish people because God has chosen them to be the instrument through whom he would bring salvation, through whom he would bring Christ. And so you had this frightening combination of a man who had the ability to mesmerize people with his words, plus the satanic power that was behind it that drove what was happening there. Have you ever watched Hitler speaking? The guy was, was so ordinary looking, and he had this comic little mustache. And if you watch him very carefully, a lot of his, his hand actions are very effeminate. It's just really weird. And you listen to his voice, it's screechy. It's just awful. You think, how could he do that? He could do it because he had the power to be able to tap into the darkness of their souls and then to bring out that darkness and bring them to the brink of war. And the war was started and killed millions of people because of the power of one man's use of words. But it would have been a way worse situation had there not been another man who also had the power of words. And his name was Winston Churchill. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but Winston Churchill had to fight his own board, his own cabinet. Winston Churchill was the one who fought against his whole people. They wanted to appease Hitler. They wanted to just get peace. Let's get peace with Hitler. And then we can live at peace. They, did, they didn't know, but Churchill assumed it. They didn't know that Hitler was planning to invade England. And he would have. Everything was in place. He was going to invade England. But they were all going, oh, no, let's appease Hitler. But Churchill had the ability, through his words, to change the minds of the leaders of the nation, and then change the, the minds of the people of the nation, and then give them courage when everything looked as if it was completely useless, hopeless. Hitler, uh, Churchill had the power then to combat the power that, that Hitler had by using words. And it's amazing what he was able to do just through his, his speeches. Now, you and I will probably never cause a world war, at least I hope. None of us have that kind of power. But every single one of us has a circle of influence around us. And the way we use our words can affect their lives for good or for evil. And in the early church, 
which was birthed into a hostile environment, which was birthed, in, birthed into a world that knew nothing about God's standards for how we should treat one another. The early church was birthed into a world that was filled with, with, with quarrels, that was filled with fighting, that was filled with, with people using their tongues to injure one another. It was the normal way people lived because the gospel had not yet spread and because the word of God had not yet spread. That was the world into which the early church was birthed. And as a result, the early church was still following the patterns of the world. And that was a tremendous threat to the, to, the early, to the church. And so as James sat down to write a letter to the early churches, one of the things he comes back to four times in this short letter is our use of our tongues, the way that we speak, and the damage that we can do to other people through our tongues. In James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, I've entitled this, The Terrorist in Your Teeth. Or the demon in your dentures. <laughs> or the monster in your molars. And when he talks about the tongue, of course he's not speaking about the physical tongue. He's speaking about the capacity that human beings have to be able to form words and express words and to talk and to say things that will either encourage and build others or that can uh, cut them down and do extreme damage. The people in these early churches were doing damage to one another. There was a lot of slander going on. There was a lot of accusations. There was a lot of damage they were doing to one another, fighting and quarreling within the church. And so as James writes to them, he writes to correct those behaviors. And the beauty about it is that they did correct. That's why the church was so powerful. They listened to what the Word of God said. They changed their behaviors, and the gospel began to spread throughout the world. Amazing story of how through those first three centuries, this little movement of people following after Jesus spread throughout the world, so much so that eventually they overturned the gods of Rome and overturned Rome itself, so that Rome eventually declared Christianity to be the state religion, which was actually the worst thing that could have happened to them, but that's another story. So, as, as James is writing these letters, and remember that every book of the Bible has got two authors. The human author who uses his own vocabulary, who uses his own experience, who does research, who sits down and writes the letters, but at the same time, the Spirit of God is writing. And the Spirit of God wrote to those early churches and taught them and teach us to be very careful how we use our mouths, be very careful how we use our words, because we can harm or we can build, but we have to be aware that Satan, and you'll see that, is always there waiting in the background to use our words and to use our tongues. So if you're going to follow in your Bible, turn to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And the first thing that James says is caution. Watch your tongue. Oh, by the way, in our day and age, it's not so much the tongue that is the danger, but the thumb. <laughs> because people do horrendous damage to one another with their texting. And so it's not just what you say, it's whatever, however you, 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 you're, you're broadcasting the thoughts that come to your mind. James says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brother, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, the reason why he does that in this setting is most of these early believers were Jewish. And every Jewish family had the, the, the hope that one of their sons would become a rabbi. And the word rabbi meant something like my exalted one. And the, what they did with rabbis is rabbis were put on a pedestal. And they become these little tyrants. Some of them were good. But many of them became these little pious religious tyrants. 
and they would then run their synagogues and run their town and would love the glory of being somebody who was called Rabbi, my marvelous one, was one way to translate it. And so the danger in the church was that the same thing would happen, that people wanted to become teachers because of the, 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 the glory that went with it, with the, the, the esteem that went along with being a teacher. And so James warns them, not many of you should want to be teachers. Now, it's not that teaching is wrong. Jesus told us that we're to make disciples and to teach them. Paul writes that, that one of the gifts God gives is the gift of teaching. And so teaching is something that is a healthy and a good thing. But James warns, not many of you should want to be teachers because understand the moment you step into that role, you're going to be judged more strictly than others because of the potential you have to do good or harm. In fact, Peter writes, he says, whenever you stand to teach, make sure that you're speaking the very words of God. The job of those who preach in the church, by the way, is that it's not our job to stand up here and tell you what we believe, what we think, and what we, what we want to do. Our job is to take this book, which is a miracle you can hold in your hands. Our job is to teach this book, to let God speak through us so that he is the one who is speaking, not us. There, there are two terms that they use when, in training us. When you study the Bible, you want to do exegesis. You want to send the word of God out, not eisegesis, where you go and you read your ideas into the Bible and force them. And so teaching is an extreme responsibility where, we're, according to Peter, we're supposed to make sure that we teach the very words of God and make sure that that is what is presented to people. The early church faced lots of false teachers. So there were false teachers right from the beginning who taught lies or taught half-truths. And a half-truth, of course, is a lie, but it takes partial truth and mixes it with a lie, and that way can seduce people into thinking that they're hearing the truth. Early church faced that as, as a major challenge to them. Another problem with the early church was they didn't do what we're doing right now. They didn't sit passively while some one person spoke. The early church, it was a discussion where somebody would speak and teach or start to it, and people could then interject their, their, their objections or they could give their opinions and stuff like that. And so the potential within any given group is that somebody may something that is not true about God or somebody may try to teach something false. And so in those churches, that's why, by the way, we no longer let you talk. I've actually tried sometimes, and it's, it's interesting to see what happens when we do that. Did I tell you about the guy who interrupted my sermon one day and said, Oh, oh, Raymond, I've got a joke that fits your sermon right now. I said, is it clean? And he went, eh. I said, all right. <laughs> so the teaching that went on then, there, were lots, there was a lot of involvement, a lot of discussion. It was more of a, of a, of a debate, debate sometimes, and... James is warning, not many of you should step into that because you're going to face a greater judgment. And he says, we all stumble in many ways. And anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And notice he says, we. He puts himself in the same category. We all stumble. We all say things that we shouldn't say. We all will find that we will stumble over it. You wouldn't believe how often on my way home on Sunday I go, I can't believe I said that. We've got to erase that recording, you know. <laughs> I hope they forget what I said. Just when you're speaking, stuff comes out of you that you didn't intend to come out. 
And James warns that the tongue is a petite but very potent part of us. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Think about that. You put a bit in the horse's mouth and you can make him move. Think about trying to make that horse move by standing in front of him as he walks, as he runs toward you. Like, no, go this way. It's not going to work. So his point is that the tongue is just the small little thing inside of our mouths, but it can do enormous things. It's got enormous power built into it. There's a whole book on this, by the way. Oh, what was his name? He wrote the, the right stuff. Tom, Tom Wolfe. He wrote an entire book on words, and it's a really interesting thing. He points out that human beings are the only ones who have developed the capacity to really communicate. People always go, oh, but chimpanzees, oh, but, 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 no. They've been doing the same thing for centuries, thousands of years. They've never developed their ability to communicate. Of course, they communicate some. But human beings have developed the ability to think and to ponder and to speak and to come up with words. And James is saying, realize you've got an incredible power, but realize that it's extremely powerful. Or take ships as an example. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Tiny little rudder, and it moves that, that, that ship wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And the point of making great boasts is that the tongue will say things that are way in excess of what it really should say uh, when, when it's, it's given that opportunity. So, we're talking about the fact that God warns us that we have been given this enormously powerful capacity to affect the lives of other people by the words that we say and to affect our own lives as well. It's really interesting that in my own my circle of influence, I can influence the lives, the lives of other people by telling lies, by slander, sometimes by seducing, sometimes by praising somebody in a situation where I shouldn't. And so I can use my own tongue, my own ability to, to communicate with others. I can use that to make promises that I'm not going to keep. How often does somebody say, would you pray for me? And you go, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. And do you? You know what I've disciplined myself to do? Is if somebody says, please, please pray for me, I do it right then. Because otherwise I know I'm going to be lying. Yeah, I'll pray for you later. Yeah, I'll keep you in mind. No, just disappears from there. And we can use this ability to communicate, to lead others into sin, to lead others away from their relationship with God, to lead them into places where they shouldn't go. Think of Jim Jones. Remember Jim Jones? We're able to persuade over a thousand people to commit suicide. Actually, they didn't all commit suicide. They murdered a ton of them. And some of them committed suicide. Think of David Koresh down in Waco, Texas was able to draw people with him. It's frightening to see the way people easily can be seduced into following after people like this. By the way, it's interesting that when Paul preached in a city called Berea, the Bereans went and searched the scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying was true. <laughs> can you believe that? This is the apostle Paul. And they checked, let's check to make sure that what he's saying is true. That's a responsibility we all have. Just because somebody's on TV doesn't mean he's telling the truth. Just because somebody's written a book doesn't mean that he's telling the truth. Christians are as gullible as anybody sometimes. I'm just astounded. You know, and, and by the way, 
Oprah? Whatever Oprah recommends, please don't read it. I mean, I'm astonished. People come and go, oh, Oprah recommended this book, and it's got this wonderful stuff in it. It's like, I know it's got some stuff in it that's good, but man, it is filled with lies. Why would you be spending time reading these stupid books that Oprah wants you to read when we've got thousands of books that, that we should be reading that are more? That's not even in my sermon notes. I don't know how I got into Oprah. Sorry about that. <laughs> but really, I'm astonished at how gullible Christians are sometimes. Oh, look at this. This is wonderful. Just recently had somebody bring me a book, and it's, 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 no, don't go there. Yes, I'm going to go there. It said that you can actually change your DNA by the way you think. It's like, oh, please, think this through for a moment. If you could change your DNA by the way you just think, I would be so handsome. <laughs> Why would you buy into something that stupid? Because she's a Christian, she says. And because she's written books and she's on the circuits. All right, see, I shouldn't have gone there. Okay, so he warns that the tongue is a petite part of your, your mouth, but it's got tremendously potent. Then he points out that the tongue is pyrogenic. It has the ability to start fires. He says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, it's not always set on fire by hell, but what he's pointing out is that there's the danger, is that Satan can use our thoughts and our minds to do incredible damage. Think of the, we've been watching it. I mean, it's really scary when you watch on TV and see as the wind blows, those little embers that are blowing that immediately start other fires, other fires after fi other fires. Chuck Swindoll tells a story of a woman who had gone around slandering other, uh, somebody to all the people in the church. And then she was convicted that she'd done wrong. And so she came to the, her pastor and said, I'm, I've confessed that I've done wrong and I've spread the slander. What can I do to turn it back? He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a feather and go to every single, the home of every single person that you spoke to and put the feather on their doorstep. Okay, so she did it. And when she came back, she said, all right, I put the feathers on all their doorsteps. And he said, okay, now I want you to go get those feathers and bring them back to me. And of course, where were the feathers? <laughs> See, and sometimes we start a rumor, we start a statement, and it goes and it spreads like fire and does damage to others. Somebody came to me a, a while ago and he said, Raymond, there's a rumor in the church that you sold a part of our property. And it's like, oh, really? First of all, I don't even think of it. <laughs> Secondly, I don't have that kind of authority. Actually, it is a darn good idea. So if you show me show up here with a Porsche, you'll know I sold a piece of our property. <laughs> there's no way I could sell it. Why would something that silly be spread. Raymond sold a piece of our property. Oh, please, come on. Okay, that's what happens, is these things go and move. I remember there was a senator who, who somebody had slandered him, and then they proved that the slander was not true. And a reporter met him on the steps of the, of the, uh, 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 on the steps as he was coming out of, of the House of Congress, and they said to him, aren't you greatly relieved that it's been proved that, that you didn't do it? He said, I am, but can you tell me where I can go to get my reputation back? Okay, see? Words can spread like that, and when they spread, 
Satan loves to do it. He loves to get behind it, and he turns them pyrogenic. He says, consider what a, sm what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. That last statement there sets the whole course of one's life on fire. Remember the Catherine wheel? Do you guys know what the Catherine wheel is that we have at, at uh, July 4th? It's one of those fireworks that's got all kinds of little spark fires. And when it goes, it goes and keeps spinning and spitting out fire. He said, watch that. Sometimes what you say is going to be like a Catherine wheel. It'll spread that kind of damage to other people. And then he says, all right, if you don't get it, the tongue is... By the way, isn't it amazing how creative James is as he writes a horse and a ship and fire like that? He's just following Jesus. Jesus knew when you teach, give people pictures, pictures that will set in their minds. And so he says, all right, if you don't get what I'm saying, let me give you another picture. He says, the tongue is poisonous. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Think of how poison works. It takes just a little bit of poison. And it can do its damage. And poison will go in and it will start to do its work quietly behind the scene often. You don't know it's coming. You eat sushi, the next morning you're going to be throwing up. Guaranteed. <laughs> I hate sushi. All right. <laughs> I know some of you are going, really? Just kidding. If I eat sushi, I'll throw up. It'll poison me. Okay, like that. Poison's got that ability to go inside and then start to eat away and do its damage silently. You don't see it at work, and it is there. We can tame all kinds of things. You can tame a tiger. Well, no, you can't. You can tame all kinds of animals, but you can't tame your tongue. It's amazing how quickly that tongue can, can say words that you regret. With the tongue, he says, we praise the Lord and Father, and we curse human beings who have been made in the image, in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. We have forked tongues. Ever watched a, a snake? You watch a snake and its tongue is constantly darting. That's how they smell the world. That's how they sense the world, is that tongue constantly darting. And he warns that, listen, we've got that potential, that we speak with forked tongues. We praise God and then we go out to lunch and we gossip about one another. And he said, my brothers and sisters, that should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is trying to protect the church. The Spirit of God is doing what he can to protect the church. And the one thing that he knew could happen, could hurt the church, is false teaching or people using their mouths to do damage to one another either personally, directly, or to their, their reputations. And so the one thing that, that God had James write four times in this little letter, he comes back to the same subject. So it was obviously a major problem in that early church. I don't think it's a major problem in our church, except about me selling the land. But that's, that's you know, we can live with that one. <laughs> I still think it's a great idea. No, stop, move along. And as he wrote this letter, the, the important thing to understand is that God's people heard what the Spirit of God was saying, and they did it. 
They obeyed it. And they changed. Changed so much that people were astonished at the Christians. They would look at them and go, these people are really weird. That they live this kind of lifestyle. But it have had the effect of changing their culture one little step at a time. There's a woman by the name of Barbara Johnson, and I recommend you read her book. She said, Oh Lord, let my words be tender and sweet, for tomorrow I may have to eat them. <laughs> so, the word is to be, we have to be careful with our words, that, that how we handle them. But there's an interesting word that came from God. His name was Jesus. In the beginning was the? And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And so God communicated to us. We are, as, as creatures, we're made with this phenomenal capacity to be able to think. He made us as intelligent beings. And he made us as beings who can not only think, but tune in to him and understand when he speaks. The writer to the Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Do me a favor. Read this with me. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And when we come to the communion table, we're remembering what he did. He provided purification for sins. Our sins have contaminated us, all of us. We're all contaminated by sin to such a degree that we can't cleanse ourselves of sin. We can't rid ourselves of sin we can't, if we were to be punished for our sins, we would have to be punished for eternity for our sins. But when Jesus was nailed to the cross, God legally transferred the guilt and the responsibility for every single sin you and I have ever committed and ever will commit onto Jesus Christ so that he became culpable for our sins. He became responsible for our sins. Then God punished him as a substitute in our place. Jesus loves us so much, he was willing to take our sins upon himself and then to be punished in our place. And when we come to the communion table, we come to remind ourselves of that fact. And Jesus said we're to do this often, as often as you do this, in remembrance of me, because we forget. We move on and we just take it for granted that we're God's children. He wants us to come back to this basis over and over again to be reminded of what the cost was, that he had to take our sin upon himself and he had to be punished and die in our place so that where after he rose from the dead, he could give us resurrection life. And the reason we do communion is to remind ourselves, but also to make a statement, to make a statement to the world. For as often as you drink this bread, <laughs> eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. It's a statement to the world of what Jesus did. 
If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to come and join us as we serve communion. If you've never yet done it, I beg you to do so. I beg you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I beg you because that's what Paul did. He said, I've come to you and, and just beg you that you would listen to the truth and that you would respond to it. You're the only you God has ever created. And God created you to do good works, as we saw last week. There's a, God has got a plan for your life that is unique to you. And God doesn't want you to waste a day of your life. He wants to make sure that you come into his family so that the you he designed you to be will begin to grow and begin to function. And so if you've never yet accepted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to do that. We beg you to do that to make sure that you've taken Christ into your life. But then when we serve communion, as you eat the bread, you're saying, as I take this bread into my mouth, I have taken Jesus into my soul. You're making a public statement of your faith in Jesus Christ. And when we serve the bread, we ask you to do that one by one. Just as soon as you receive the bread and you're ready, go ahead and eat the bread as a personal statement of your faith. But then we'll come back and we'll serve the, the wine and we ask you to hang on to it. It's actually grape juice. Hang on to the grape juice. And then we will drink together as the fact that to reflect the fact that we're not just individual little Christians. The body of Christ. That's the most amazing word we could ever share with anybody else. This is the word of salvation that God has sent to us. And so the Apostle Paul says before we partake of, of communion, we should examine ourselves to make sure, I believe, that we don't do harm to anybody else. And if there's any harm that's been done to somebody else, we repent of it. And also to make sure that we don't treat this as a fast food. It's just a trivial thing at all. It's not. It's interesting. Uh, we've often dealt with, the, 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 is this an ordinance or is this a sacrament? The difference is this, an ordinance is just a rule, a law. A sacrament says no, there's something more. There's something sacred about the Lord's table. And what is sacred is that Jesus is present, not in the bread, not in the wine, but in the room. And Jesus is present because he is the host of this table. And so the communion table is a sacrament. It's sacred in that sense. So before we come to the table, we're told to examine ourselves so that we don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner. So let's pray together as we prepare to come.